A lot of San Diego schools are back in session as COVID-19 cases rise. I think my primary concern is I'm worried that schools may be forced into temporary closures due to staffing shortages. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Long testing lines, strained emergency rooms, and ever-changing guidelines are contributing to the current COVID-19 surge. If you put in all these factors, we are not in a great position. The minimum wage is officially $15 an hour in California. So what does that mean in the age of the Great Resignation? And we check in with our friends at KBBS's Port of Entry podcast. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. San Diego County schools have started returning to the classroom from winter break this week as COVID cases reach new highs. In response today, the county is distributing thousands of coronavirus tests to local school districts and charter schools to help blunt the spread of the virus. I'm joined by San Diego County Office of Education Executive Director Bob Mueller to talk more about how schools are handling the return to the classroom. Welcome. Pleasure to be with you. As I mentioned, your office is distributing COVID-19 testing kits today. Can you tell me more about these efforts and how they're going? We received an initial allocation uh, from the state of about two-thirds of what we were expecting. We were expecting to receive around 300,000 test kits. That initial allocation has already been provided to about 20 school districts and a number of charter schools uh, that, that replied very early. We're working on waiting lists now uh, so that when we get the rest of the allocation and we can continue to distribute those tests. Are you expecting to get more tests and are there enough to go around? We are expecting to get more tests. I, unfortunately, I don't know how soon they'll arrive. There should be enough to go around. The allocation was based on the number of students in public schools, and there was an amount subtracted for school districts and charter schools that had received an earlier allocation. So some some received an allocation very early, and then the governor came back with another $6 million, and that's what we're working on now. And what's the protocol once these schools do receive the kits? Who's keeping track of these tests? And what happens if a student or a teacher does, in fact, test positive? So the test kits are intended for use at home. The parents can screen their children to see if they have a positive result. If they are, we're hoping that the parent will notify the school of the positive result and and hold their child home. So if a child tests positive or, or if a school employee tests positive, the states release new guidance on isolation that allows them to return to school or work as early as six days after their, their symptoms began. But to return, they will need to take another test on day five or later that shows that they're no longer positive. Unfortunately, at-home tests can't be used for this purpose. It would need to be a test that's administered through a medical office, a clinic, a laboratory, or an approved school site testing program. 
Most local universities and community colleges have shifted to virtual learning to start their spring term, but local school districts so far appear to have no plans to follow suit. Why not? You know, the loss to to children from in-person learning is just so significant. College students are capable of independent learning and really don't require a great deal of assistance from from their instructors. Kids really need the interaction, the the FaceTime with their teachers and the interaction with their peers to thrive. So it's just really important that we continue in-person operations as long as we're able to. Really, the only thing that would likely close a school at this point would be a, a staffing shortage, the inability to safely operate the school. Beyond staffing shortages, is there any specific benchmarks or data that you're tracking that might make schools change course from in-person learning at this point? The the state legislature passed a law earlier this year that basically required schools to exhaust all options before uh, a temporary closure is put in place. And really, the the circumstances are quite limited. A, A staffing shortage is really the only reason that a school leader could choose to do that. Short of that, it would need to be an order from the public health officer to close. What are you hearing from local parents and teachers as classes resume right now, as I mentioned, right when cases are kind of on the uptick? What concerns are they raising? Yeah, one of the big ones is that the the guidance on quarantine and isolation changed on December 30th, and it's resulted in a fair amount of confusion on what the rules are related to isolation and quarantine. So we've been working very hard, collaborating closely with the County of San Diego Public Health Services on decision-making tools and revising those tools. So the, the transition between the old guidance and the new guidance came at a difficult time during the middle of a surge, right as we're returning to school. And, and it's, it's a significant shift. What is your biggest concern for your students right now as we navigate yet another wave? I think my primary concern is I, I'm worried that schools may be forced into temporary closures due to staffing shortages. Schools were having difficulty securing substitutes before the surge began. They were being creative in the way they covered those shortages. But if school employees uh, are required to isolate because they have symptoms or test positive or because they're close contacts, and school employees live in our communities, it's, it's likely that we'll see more employees out and school districts, charter schools, and private schools having greater difficulty covering those absences. So anything we can do as a community to protect each other, to lower the, the rate of infection, will serve to keep schools open longer and minimize the chance that they might be forced to close for, for a week or two. I've been speaking with Bob Mueller, Executive Director of the San Diego County Office of Education. Thank you so much for your time today. You're quite welcome. As predicted, the current surge is propelling COVID case numbers to historic highs. The United States opened the week reporting nearly a million new coronavirus infections, 
the single highest daily count of any country in the world since the pandemic started. As the highly infectious Omicron variant shows no signs of slowing, health officials are having to rethink guidance on everything from masking and testing to isolation protocols. Joining us with answers to some of our most pressing COVID questions is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jane. Good to be with you again. Dr. Topol, we mentioned just how many cases we're seeing nationally. San Diego as well is seeing record highs. Are we currently seeing the peak of this surge? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, We have just recently hit in the 90% countrywide for Omicron new cases by sequencing. And that means that we are still growing. Omicron is not evenly distributed throughout the country. So we have weeks to go to get through this Omicron surge, which is, as you already noted, unprecedented. When we first heard about the Omicron variant, we heard that most people in South Africa showed mild symptoms from infection, and that's with much of the population not having access to the vaccines. How is the U.S. faring with hospitalizations in light of these high case numbers? That's a really important question because South Africa is so different with 25% vaccination. But we've seen countries like the UK and Denmark, Norway, where there's a very high vaccination rate, notably in Denmark, almost 80% of the population. Whereas here in the US, the country overall is 62%. And we're a bit better than that here in San Diego. So vaccination is just one part of the story. It's also the age and demographics of the population. There's also prior COVID, how recent the prior COVID was. So if you put in all these factors, we are not in a great position. More children are being hospitalized with COVID than previously. Are those hospitalizations higher among any particular age group of children, such as those under five who still aren't eligible for the vaccine? Yes, there's the uh, rate in hospitalizations and illness in children is alarming. It's the highest it's been in the pandemic. It's a mixture. There are some who are in the age less than five where there's no ability to have vaccination. It's not, they're not eligible. And then there's a very low use of vaccination from five all the way through age 17 in this country relative to what it should be. And so it's mostly unvaccinated children that are winding up in the hospital. And, you know, this is really unfortunate. We are seeing in San Diego co-infections with the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. We're also noting that, you know, with the very small airways in infants, young children, there may be a higher liability because Omicron tends to be very highly replicated in the upper airway. And whereas adults can handle that, uh, infants and young children, that's a much harder problem to deal with. Given that this is so difficult for children under five, particularly to deal with, do you have any advice for uh, parents on how to keep their children protected from the virus? Right. Well, fortunately, most children are going to do very well, even, you know, for younger age, less than five without vaccination. The Omicron is overall a milder form of the clinical severity. But to protect young children, the best thing we can possibly do is have a family fully vaccinated. And I'm defining fully as with a booster. And that's essential. That booster is incredibly important uh, against Omicron. And then the other things, of course, are the gatherings, the distancing, the high quality masks, 
it's hard for young children to wear high quality masks, but there are KN94s. And if they can use them when they're mixing with other kids and people, that would be great. And speaking of masks, many health officials have said cloth masks are far less effective against Delta and now Omicron. KN95 masks are recommended, uh, but how available are they, especially for children who can't get vaccinated but have to be in school? Well, the KN95s and 94s are pretty widely available and relatively inexpensive. The N95s are the ones that are really expensive and there probably isn't worth the difference between something that costs less than a dollar versus four or five dollars per mask. So the KN94s for children and 95s for adults, they can be bought uh, certainly through the internet and and other sources and highly recommended well over uh, cloth masks that just aren't adequately protective. You know, one thing that's certainly been difficult to gain access to are tests. Uh, You've been talking about the need for them since the beginning of this pandemic. How is the county doing with making them accessible, you think? Well, Jay, this is really disappointing. San Diego County had done pretty well in this pandemic relative to many other places and even uh, in our state of California, but they've really let down recently and it's much harder to get a test. The demand is overwhelming, the limited supply. And of course, the country, our U.S. government, hasn't done what we had been begging for them to do, which is to get out free rapid tests to every household, like is occurring in Colorado and certain parts of the country. So those are expected, perhaps by the end of the month, we'll start to see rapid tests being distributed countrywide for free. But the the supply, again, is not going to be at all ample. We've seen some revision from the CDC on their guidance for isolation periods. What can you tell us about this? And do you agree with the changes? Just recently, the CDC, after having said healthcare professionals should have seven days of isolation and then have a rapid test or some type of test before they get back to work, you know, that's negative. Then they came out six days later and said, well, the public Ah, five days, don't bother with a test, just wear a mask. I mean, if you're feeling well or your symptoms are resolving, just go back to work with a mask. So this is just profoundly off base because it's not science-based. It goes counter the practice in many other countries that have been using rapid tests. You know, it's not, if they just told the truth, Jade, and said, look, we just don't have enough tests in this country. We can't keep up with the test demand. So we're not recommending tests, but if you can do it, this is the right way to to use them. And instead they said, if your test is uh, positive, you just isolate for another five days. I mean, basically they didn't tell the truth. The message has been garbled and just horrible. And then they basically said, if it's positive, you know, stay isolated for another five days. Well, that's not the way it should work. You should have ample tests so that, you know, on day six, you test again, it's negative. Day seven, it's negative. Now you're fine to go. The, 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 the use of day five and then just going out circulating again without a test is really not good. It's likely promoting spread of the virus. Hmm. And with that, the possibility of further variants always remains a concern in this pandemic. What's emerging now and what's known about it? There has been one variant that was identified in France that gave um, some pause for concern, but that's been looked at thoroughly. And, you know, it's what I call a scariant. Hopefully, one silver lining of Omicron is that we're going to build up a lot more of an immunity wall because so many people are getting infected. And that should help us uh, in the next uh, stage of this pandemic. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. 
Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim. While the pandemic has ravaged much of the cross-border economy, Tijuana's maquiladora industry has flourished. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis tells us what's behind this resurgence. This is the sound of Tijuana's booming maquiladora industry. The daily thunder from thousands of cargo trucks shipping goods into the U.S. through the Otay Mesa border crossing. Those trucks carry everything, from Topo Chico hard seltzer to Toyota Tacomas assembled just outside Tecate. Each one is a sign of what's shaping up to be a new roaring 20s for Tijuana's maquiladoras, which are manufacturing and warehouse facilities along the southern border. Well, this is undoubtedly the most exciting and the most dynamic uh, time period we've had in the maquiladora industry for decades. This is Ernesto Bravo. He works for Tecma, a company that helps foreign businesses move to Mexico. And they've been doing it since the 1980s. So that makes Bravo our resident historian for the bustling border town's maquiladora industry. The, the industry was born really in the 70s. It grew significantly in the 80s. 2000s was a bit of a challenging period uh, with China coming into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and enjoying certain benefits in terms of international trade, um, a lot of manufacturers actually migrated to China. But over the last few years, the companies that left, they're coming back. We have seen reverse migration, if you want to say, from Asia to Mexico as companies realize that they need to be closer to their clients, uh, and with the U.S. being the number one market in the world for everything, virtually. You want to be the, the closest place you can be. The pandemic made it abundantly clear that saving money by shifting manufacturing away from North America is a bad bet. Mauricio Tortolero heads the real estate division at the TP Legal Law Firm in Tijuana. He witnessed firsthand what happened to businesses that expanded supply chains before the pandemic. One of his clients thought they could save money by opening a manufacturing facility in South America, but... When the COVID situation started, that product wasn't able to come or to arrive here in Mexico or in, in the U.S. in time. So all their operation got, got delayed, and it was a big problem for the company. The fastest-growing sector of Tijuana's maquiladora industry is fulfillment centers. These are essentially repackaging and shipping warehouses that use a little-known section of the U.S. tariff code to avoid paying fees on certain imports. It's called Section 321, and it allows companies to avoid fees 
as long as they ship items worth $800 or less directly to customers. So instead of shipping items in bulk to the U.S., companies set up fulfillment centers just south of the border. That's why we're in the middle of a fulfillment center building boom in Tijuana. Adriana Aguia works for Vesta, one of the biggest industrial developers in the region. She says compared to just a year ago, the growth has been... 10 times. Yeah, 10 times at least. 10 times, and we know that probably is going to grow more. Experts who follow Tijuana's maquiladora industry are bullish on the market. Demand is high, and the underlying conditions behind the boom don't seem to be going away. Unless there is a change, or unless there is something catastrophic happens, I think that we will continue to see growth. But there's at least one big potential roadblock, and that's Tijuana's infrastructure. Businesses need stable sources of water and power to run warehouses. They need roads to transport goods across the border. And they need a reliable transit system for their employees to get to work on time. Historically, Tijuana has not invested in infrastructure. And that could come back to haunt the city. What, what needs to happen now is a lot of will from uh, governments and business people to put on uh, investment into the infrastructures of the cities. Because if we keep on growing and there's no more roads and, and security and lightning and everything that the city needs in order to keep on the growth, it probably it's going to collapse. But for now, expect the trucks to keep on rolling at Otay Mesa. For more on this story and the resurgence of maquiladoras in Tijuana, we're joined now by KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Hey, Gustavo. Hey, Christina. How's it going? So before we dive into why Tijuana is seeing a resurgence in maquilas, which, as you say, are manufacturing and warehousing facilities along the border, give us a little background. When did we last see maquiladoras last flourish? And why and when did they start to leave Mexico? Well, so maquiladoras have been a cornerstone of uh, Tijuana's economy for decades, right? They, they produce cars, electronics, even medical devices. Uh, actually, a fair amount of the ventilators that kept people alive during the early days of the pandemic came from uh, maquiladoras in Tijuana. And the industry took a little bit of a hit in the 2000s, around the time China came into the World Trade Organization and received uh, certain benefits in terms of international trade. At the time, China had significantly lower labor costs in Mexico, but over the last couple of years, labor costs over there have more or less equaled to those in Mexico, and companies are seeing that cost savings just aren't worth dealing with the uh, supply chain issues. And I know you've noted that the pandemic also has put an additional strain on supply chain issues, and so we're seeing more companies actually return to Mexico. What do we know of what companies are actually coming back, and how can this impact U.S. consumers? Well, I can't really give you names of specific companies that have moved. They're, they're all really secretive about it, uh, almost to the point of being paranoid. Particularly American companies, they don't want the bad publicity for being in Mexico. Uh, but I can tell you a lot of the companies that are moving to Tijuana aren't your typical household names. They're smaller companies that subcontract or do work for some of the Walmarts or Targets of the world. And from a supply chain standpoint, I mean, that, that's Tijuana's biggest advantage right now, the location, right? We like to complain about waiting a few hours to cross the border, but it's nothing compared to waiting weeks to cross the Pacific only to get stuck in a bottleneck at the Port of Los Angeles. You say fulfillment centers are by far the fastest growing industry there. Can you say more about why that is and how companies are using Section 321 of the U.S. Tariff Code? Yeah, so just to explain, Section 321 is a, a part of a tariff code that companies can use to avoid paying fees 
on importing goods. The way it works is if you ship items worth $800 or less and mail them directly to individual customers in the U.S., you don't have to pay tariffs on it. Uh, let's use laptops as an example. Companies shipping crates of laptops to the U.S. have to pay a tariff. Instead, they can ship them in bulk to a fulfillment center in Tijuana. The laptops will be repackaged into smaller boxes, get slapped with a shipping label that has your name and address on it. Then they'll be loaded into trucks and cross the border without having to pay any fees. Now, the most interesting thing I think about Section 321 is that it's really, it's been around since the 1930s, but has just recently become popular, and that's because of the actions of former presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Uh, Obama, in around 2016, increased the limit on Section 321 goods from $200 to $800. This was a way to help uh, e-commerce companies. And Trump, of course, raised tariffs on China. So both of those actions, right, raising the cap and increasing the number of tariffs, have both incentivized companies to take advantage of Section 321. How is the return of a booming maquiladora industry impacting Mexican workers? Are there enough workers to fill the need? And how do wages at these jobs compare to other available work? Well, you mentioned the workforce, and that's actually a huge draw for companies. I mean, Mexico's average age is 28 compared to about 39 in the U.S. And Mexico's workforce is projected to grow in the next decade. And now Mexico, in terms of wages, right, Mexico has a weird minimum wage system. It's one wage at the border and another wage in the interior of the country. Along the border, it's about 260 pesos a day, or just over $12. And maquiladoras tend to pay a lot more than that. Now, of course, $12 a day sounds awful to our American listeners, but it's an upgrade to what was at the border, and it's a lot more than what people are making at the southern states of Mexico. If this rate of expansion continues, how could Tijuana and the border economy change over the next few years? See, well, one of the things I'm interested in reporting on and just keeping an eye on is the presence and the growth of the tech industry in Tijuana. Uh, the city has several vocational training schools, and they produce way more software engineers and coders than San Diego does. Of course, coding is its own language, right? So it doesn't matter if you learn it in the U.S. or Mexico. It's the same thing, and companies are starting to take notice. I've been speaking with Gustavo Solis, KPBS investigative border reporter. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Christina. This week, the California legislature reconvenes, and yesterday on the California Report, a KQED reporter spoke to State Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, a Democrat, about the legislative year ahead and his party's priorities. Today, the California Report gets a Republican view from the other house of the state legislature. It comes from Scott Wilk, the leader of the Republican caucus in the state Senate. KQED reporter Kevin Stark started by asking the senator about Republican goals for this session. So obviously we're we're in the we're in the super minority. So it, it is difficult to to have an impact. I believe we did last legislative session. Uh, we were able to press the governor with with help from some of our Democratic allies in the legislature to do some things that maybe he didn't want to do or did bigger than he wanted to do. Uh, this year, I really see our goals is, is twofold: one, restoring the constitutional balance of power making the legislative branch co-equal with the, with the governor's office. Uh, you know, when we granted him the emergency powers, uh, we did it reluctantly. 
And we did it based upon the information that we were given at the time by Dr. Galley, who said that the coronavirus was highly infectious and we should expect 25 million Californians to come down with it. And out of those 25 million, 3 million were gonna die. That's what we are armed with. And obviously you have to give the executive some flexibility in order to, to meet a crisis, but clearly that's not come to fruition. And it's really time to, to, to rein that power in and restore our rightful voice in the process. You know, I understand why my Democratic colleagues didn't want to do it last year. You know, we're in the midst of a recall, didn't want to embarrass him. But I, I really hope that we will stand up and, and, and do the right thing because we all benefit from better balance in government, government. So that's one. Then number two, you know, protect the taxpayers. We had an unbelievable budget year last year to the shock of all. Uh, looks like it's going to happen again this year. And we want to make investments in, in things that matter. You know, we've got we've got the GAN limit. And so under the GAN limit, uh, we can rebate money back to taxpayers. We can invest in, in public education, which I'm supportive of, although I'd like to see some reforms. And we can do one-time infrastructure. Let's talk about raw numbers and clout. There are 120 seats combined between the Assembly and the Senate. Uh, in the Assembly, 28 seats uh, are held by Republicans. In your House, the Senate, 40 seats. There are nine of you. There are nine Republicans. So given those numbers, what can you accomplish? And, and please don't take offense, but do Republicans matter? I w- when I got up here, I was at, at 14, then 11, and then 9. And, and, and clearly, there's a big difference. When we were at 14, we worked with moderate Dems, and we, kill, we killed a lot of stuff. When we were at 11, less so. Uh, and then last year at 9, really the only kind of the most egregious bills. I would like to see a center-right coalition where we actually can pass stuff. Uh, that does not exist today. So the first step toward that, though, to be honest with you, was the redistricting process. As you know, we have an independent citizens commission that does it. Uh, they do it every 10 years. And if you look at the California target book and you look at other uh, other entities that track this, they show that Senate Republicans going plus three uh, under the present map. Uh, our data shows us the ability to go plus four. And if we can get up 13, 14, boom, all, all of a sudden, you know, we can we can kill a lot more stuff. And then that get that does give us a seat at the table. What would be your advice then to Republicans running this year? First of all, talk to everybody. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the things that we've not done well at. You know, you need to connect with people and then talk to them about the issues they care about. I think too many times, too many of, of my compadres want to relitigate issues they've already lost instead of taking it to, uh, to our issues that, that we, can, we can win. So, mm-hmm. you know, transparency and accountability in government really becoming serious about addressing, you know, the homelessness, wildfires, water storage, educational reform. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I think we prevail on that I think more voters agree with us than not. That was State Senator Scott Wilk, leader of the Republican Caucus in the State Senate. With the new year comes new laws, and just this week, the minimum wage of all workers in San Diego jumped to $15 an hour. While the change has been lauded by elected officials and workers' rights advocates, many say that the wage hike is still not enough. Joining us now with more on what this increase means in the age of the Great Resignation is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. Lori, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. 
So this increase is the culmination of a nearly decade-old campaign, the fight for 15. What's been the local response now that the change has taken effect in 2022? I think it's almost kind of a different response than we've seen with previous uh, wage increases where business owners were, you know, not happy about the continued increases in the minimum wage, especially for tipped workers who traditionally make minimum wage and then make a lot more with tips. And that's because, as you mentioned, the Great Resignation, there's such a shortage of workers that um, even before this kicked in, businesses were offering wages well above minimum wage because they need to attract workers. So as I pointed out in my story, it almost felt like a so what milestone, even though it is quite a milestone, because the reality is you as an employee right now, who's more like a service worker or you know a lower wage worker, can command higher wages than this minimum because of the desperation of employers. You write that unions, workers, advocates, and local elected leaders have celebrated the wage hike. But how does that really differ from the average employee's perspective? Well, I think for a long time, um, the message, at least in California, is that minimum wage, whether it's twelve fifty an hour or $15 an hour, isn't enough to live on in California, especially in Southern California, where the cost of living is so high. Many of these minimum wage workers are having to work two jobs, and, and that will probably continue to be the case with this uh, increase to 15 And even as the wage floor sees this increase, as you mentioned, uh, larger companies like McDonald's are offering even more competitive salaries to attract workers. What kind of an impact will this have on small businesses? Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you've got McDonald's, Jack in the Box, Amazon's offering $18 an hour. They have the financial wherewithal because they're so large to, um, to make that adjustment. But it's the smaller businesses that do have a tough time. I talked to an owner of Super Cocina, a fast casual restaurant in San Diego. And he said, in addition to having trouble finding workers right now, that his payroll has increased substantially. Every two weeks, it's gone from 17000 to about 23000 And he's concerned about that. And he understands and he supported, he said, the $15 an hour wage fight. But he's concerned about being able to continue to be able to pay those kind of wages Plus, you know, deal with um, inflationary costs for, for food. Food products are going up, too. The prices for those are going up, too. Is $15 an hour enough to live and work in a place like San Diego? No. We keep reading the stories about how rent's going up. Forget buying a home. That the cost of buying a home has gone up. Um, again, to give you another anecdote, I didn't include her in the story, but another fast food worker is having to survive on credit cards and payday loans because it's not enough. And and also, even if you've got two people in the household making minimum wage, it may be enough, but you, you still, there's still potential to go into a debt. But we can't minimize the fact that, you know, 10 years ago, there was this fight to bring it to 15. And it seemed revolutionary at the time. And now we're we're there. And then in the city of San Diego started in 2016 with an ordinance to bring it up to 15. So we have made progress. And if you put that in the context of a federal minimum wage, which is still just a little above $7 an hour, you, you see it is still to a degree a momentous occasion. It's still, it sounds like it was already too little, but now it's definitely too little too late for some people. Yes. Good point. Yes. Yeah. How have employers reacted to this change? They're accepting it because they recognize that they need workers. So like I said, their position is so different from past minimum wage increases because of this desperation. Um, And you're seeing some businesses are having to close 
temporarily or close earlier or not open seven days a week because they don't have enough workers. So like I said, this year's wage increase, the, the reaction is quite a bit different because they know the reality that whether there's a mandated wage increase or not, it's de facto happening because they need workers so badly. Right. So the worker shortage really is playing into this. The fight for 15 is over now, but already a new campaign is advocating for an $18 minimum wage. Uh, What can you tell us about that? So that is a statewide campaign, which I'm sure um, San Diego advocates will will join in. And a wealthy Los Angeles investor has filed papers for the state to to start that. Now he's promised to finance the signature gathering effort, and we'll see if that makes it on the ballot. And if it does, it would gradually increase the state minimum wage to $18 an hour over the next few years. But I should point out that the existing law for minimum wage for the whole state and then the existing minimum wage wage law for just the city of San Diego, both have uh, provisions that allow the minimum wage to increase based on the consumer price index or inflation. So um, it's not like it won't keep rising locally and statewide, but again, it's tied to inflation. And I guess if inflation isn't high, then the minimum wage increase won't be a lot, but at least minimum wage workers are guaranteed continued increases, but this would, this ballot measure would legislate it. So it would be a gradual increase, just as we saw with the existing state and city of San Diego minimum wage ordinances. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter, Lori Weisberg. Lori, thank you for joining us. And thank you. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. For nearly two years, the U.S.-Mexico border was partially closed in an effort to stop the spread of COVID-19. But in reality, people from the U.S. and binational citizens have been crossing the border throughout the pandemic. It was mainly just Mexican citizens with tourist visas who weren't allowed to cross. The closure separated families for months, people lost jobs, and our own Alan Lilienthal, co-host of KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, was separated from his band, Tulengua, a hip-hop group with members who live on both sides of the border. In a new episode of Port of Entry, Alan, his co-host Natalie Gonzalez, and producer Kinsey Moreland take us on a cross-border journey. They join Alan's bandmate, Jimmy Mora, as he's finally able to cross the border again after the restrictions were lifted late last year. Oh, man. I can't even believe how, like... to the degree like how differently I related to myself before the pandemic yeah so anyone who knows Alan knows that music is the center of his whole universe yes and when live music stopped because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and my band couldn't get together because of the closed border it really shook me up why why are you making fun of me gonna clean your tears poor baby not nah, just kidding man anyway so you you got real and vulnerable that day in the car when we were crossing the border with jimmy and you shared exactly how it shook you up i've had anxiety my whole life but i think before the pandemic 
and having so much time to spend with myself, which was hard a lot of the time because you, you have to really realize that like a lot of the things you blame other people for or like that you blame situations for is like something you carry inside. Um, so before, like say, I would get anxious and then that I pile like guilt on top of it. Like, why are you feeling anxious? Like, what do you have to complain about? Like, and then guilt would come on top of that. And it's like, it's this like never ending layers of, of like judgment and like really self-hatred, like self, self-criticism, self, self-negativity, right? Like it would keep piling up on top of the other. And while that still gets triggered in me, so I can see like how I used to relate. Now I can way more easily be nice to myself and just be kind to myself. And that's the biggest change in everything because that, that changes how you relate to everything, to everything. So yeah, I used a lot of that downtime in the pandemic to deal with all the mental health stuff. Yes, we should all deal with mental health stuff. Yes, and it actually helped me evolve my relationship to music. Talk to me a little bit more about how it changed. Well, before COVID, I was really using music to fill a void, get love from other people, avoid feeling lonely. Because I was always felt like I was good at music, so it felt like that was the way that I needed to get approval and love from other people. Yeah. But when I started addressing my anxiety and my depression and I couldn't play music for other people, it made me realize I could give it to myself and find love for myself. That's beautiful. And it made music a lot more fun and freeing. So yeah, just like Jimmy, for the first time in my life during the pandemic, I ended up using my alone time to write and record solo music too. And this banger we are listening to right now is called Soft Plans. It's one of those songs Alan wrote during the time. Now the music that is being made, and I, I know Jimmy feels the same way, um, because we had to learn this on our own. It's like, oh wow, like I'm, I'm making music from a state of place of health and from a place of wholeness, and it just makes it feel so much better because you're not relying on music like like on, as a crutch or as a drug to to fill to fill like an empty void. Good morning, my name is Jaime Mora. We are in Tijuana right now. We're about to cross the international border on a Monday. <laughs> on a busy Monday, yeah. Because of COVID rules at the U.S.-Mexico border crossing, my bandmate Jimmy wasn't allowed to cross into the U.S. for almost two years. And when the restrictions finally ended in November and Jimmy could finally cross the border again, 
we wanted to be there with him. Alan, tú ibas manejando, and our producer Kinsey was recording you in the passenger seat, y Jimmy and I were in the back seat. Right now we are in, what's this, this area called? La, La Colonia Federal, yeah. We are at La Colonia Federal. We just got some coffee. It's pretty good from Nativo Coffee Community. And we're about to cross the border. Crossing the border. Yeah. <laughs> Crossing the border. Crossing the border. So the second crossing attempt was shorter, but the borderline was still pretty long. I think there's still longer lines right now because of a bottleneck of all those people like Jaime who haven't been able to cross in almost two years. Wow. Second take of trying to cross the border with tu lengua. <laughs> still super <laughs> fucking long. The challenges of having a binational band. Huh? Damn. Without sentries. We are going far for this. Back, back, back. We did eventually make it through to the U.S. It took us about three hours. Yeah, and actually Kinsey and I, who both have the Century Fast Pass that allows you to cut long line, ended up ditching you and running through the border traffic so we could go pee. Yep, that happens to the best of us. Anyway, spending all that time in that borderline with Jimmy that day reminded me of pre-pandemic times. Specifically, the huge role that actual borderline and waiting in it has played when it comes to our cross-border band. One of my favorite things I'm remembering now about Tulengua, most of our bonding in the first, like, pre-pandemic was in the borderline, like, talking about most of the, like, the ideas about Tulengua and, and dreams and, like, plans for the future were, like, actually waiting in line at the border because... When we were getting to know each other, I mean, we bonded very quickly. Like, immediately as soon as we met, it was like there was a familiar energy between us. But, you know, spending hours in the borderline together for for a couple of years, we would just... That's when you really, like, get to know someone because you just, like, it's just... You just talk you talk about family. It's just bullshit. You just, like, f*** around because you you're bored, you know, and, like, and dream about the future. And we would talk about Tulang and, like, listen to our demos and listen to our songs all the time in the car. Being this cross-border band and like, you know, our music and our, I mean, our whole band formed because of the border and this desire to like have a band that's from both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. 